Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and we're back here with our favorite clinical psychologist, Alina Vasilake. And today's episode is another Q&A session. We received so much great feedback from the first Q&A, and so we decided to bring this back, the same style of episode with some new questions and some really great ones as well. We got some questions about you know, starting from self-esteem to overcoming things in life, such as fear and some tip-related questions. So let's jump right into it. Alina, great to have you back and thank you for doing this Q&A. Great to be here again. I'm very excited. I love these episodes where really we're answering questions, uh, direct questions from the public, from the listeners. So let's hear them. I want to start off with this question today because it's very relatable and we actually did an episode on it previously, burnout. And I think it's quite common and these questions come up a lot because we're in this so-called culture of burnout. So this person asks, I feel like it's a very tough one. They say, I can't leave my job, but my physical and mental well-being is suffering. What should I do? Yeah, um, Mm. well... What you should do is leave your job, indeed, because as we've mentioned in our episode um, uh, related to burnout, there's no solution. Once you reach to the place where you burn out emotionally, psychologically, but also physically, your body uh, reached that place of no going back. Uh, with the specific work. But we understand that sometimes people cannot afford it. They're not in the right place. They're not yet empowered enough to, to be able to take such a, such a step. Um, so I would say what I would do there in the meantime, I would really try to balance myself uh, so I can cope with the uh, with with work, with the work that's that's burning me out. So let's say the work is giving me the burnout and it's obviously a very, very intense, significant source of negative feelings uh, and even symptoms, yeah? Psychological and physiological symptoms. So I'm already dealing in my life with this huge source of negativity. So what I need to do in order to survive it and to be able to push through is to somehow balance it with a lot of sources of positive feelings. So basically, what will help me push through is if I balance a little bit sources of negativity with sources of positivity, which can be, you know, Mm. can be different ones. It can be love and affection from my close ones. It can be uh, time off that I take to try to take care of myself, my body and my mind and my spirit. Um, You know, really, really make sure that I have that time off and this connection from work, no matter what the, the job is and the responsibility is there, but there should be time for yourself. Again, the fact that you've reached this place of being burned out by work, by a job, psychologically tell, tells us a lot about the person yeah it's it's not okay yeah. to to accept that it's not okay to just let yourself reach that place i know life takes us you know places where we don't want to be sometimes but yeah there are, there are certain it's a dangerous place to be it's a very dangerous place and it. it's easy for all of mm-hmm. us to kind of uh, you know, get there. Um, myself, I was there so many times in my life. And, but, uh, but the problem is you need to empower yourself to be able to see, you know, to see in your future, to see further, to see past this job and to be able to, mm-hmm. to feel that power to move on, you know, to just quit, 
to find something else. But of course, we cannot take irrational decisions and not consider the economical safety. You know, that is understandable. So in the meantime, even more reason you have as a person, if you're dealing with the burnout, even more reason you have as a person to find as many resources in your life and to use those resources to the maximum. So I would say now is the time to use all the possible resources in your life. When I say resources, I mean the sources of positive feelings. It can be friends, it can be family, it can be hobbies, it can be time off, it can be uh, things that give me a message that I'm taking care of myself. It can be, um, you know, things that have a healing power uh, for me. Um, so I use my resources you know, at the maximum now, because this is when I need them the most. You see, people make this mistake sometimes that they go towards their resources, they go towards sources of positive feelings more when they are okay. (laughs) Um, But Mm. actually we should go more when we're not okay towards them because that's what's going to help us push through. I would also say that we have to be careful. What are those things that give us those positive feelings? Because a lot of the time we turn to, let's say, alcohol or like cigarettes and, you know, not always the best. Um, they may they might make us feel positive, but they're not always maybe the best alternatives. So maybe it's also things that feel good and help us in the long run too. Yes. And I'm very, very happy that you're mentioning this because this is an important aspect there. Those are not resources. What you're talking about there are Mm. ways of escaping or ways of numbing our emotions or ways of, um, you know, coping with that negativity. So you never, and and it goes back to that relationship with yourself because it means that you don't, if let's say I'm very stressed at work and when I come home after that work, what I do to disconnect is I drink uh, so much that I numb myself and I smoke and I don't know, take drugs or whatever. Definitely that next day is not going to help me push through another day of burnout and another day of stressful work. It will make me feel worse. It will make me feel like I cannot cope with my life in my life. And uh, so those are not resources, actually. Those are ways of escape Mm. and numbing our emotions. And those come from a negative relationship with yourself. If you and of course, therapy would help you actually identify what really is a resource and a source of positive feeling, uh, which is short term and long term. Yeah, so I feel good now and I feel good tomorrow. So let's say I come home from after a stressful day, and what I do is I go for a run, let's say, or I go for a jog, or I go and meet some close friends that really I know they're you know loving people. For sure, I will feel good in the moment and I'll feel good next day as well about it. Right. So that's the difference. Yeah. But what if you're so exhausted? What if you're so exhausted that you can't, you don't even have the energy to meet with your friends or to go for a run? Like you just want to pass out. That's um, probably. Well, there's a very, there's a distinction here. And you're the one to really understand on each moment what is best for you. So let's say I am so exhausted. Mm-hmm so you know physically tired that i just cannot go out and meet my friends okay we understand you should not push yourself because realistically physically you're tired then let's take another option maybe it's i take a nice relaxing bath and put some candles around it and i feel that that relaxes my body or i simply say Mm -hmm. i switch off everything and i sleep um but then you need to go one one situation, each situation at a time, and taking each situation the right decision to uh, from a very loving, supporting relationship with yourself. You see, from a very 
kind and uh, soft approach there. Uh, sometimes, as you say, it will be that the person is so, most of the times, the person is so physically exhausted, because if it's a burnout, obviously it means that they overwork, right? Um, and they're physically so exhausted that they cannot have uh, find the energy left to do physical activity or to go and out and meet people. But then we need to identify what works, you know, um, for them as a resource without this energy cost, yeah? Without adding the energetic mm, cost. Right. Yeah, I really like that. And um, I think that makes sense. It's really about tuning in to your body and and seeing what would be the best resource for that moment for yourself. Okay, so the next question is related to self-esteem. At least to me, it comes off that way. And um, it's, it's interesting. I think we've spoken about self-esteem in our last Q&A as well. So it seems there's a very common issue with, with, with our self-esteem. So, um, yeah, let's go into it. So this person says, I'm sometimes afraid to be myself. How do I overcome that? Mm -hmm. I'm sometimes afraid to be myself. A lot of people have this feeling. I imagine this is, um, an adult talking and they're noticing that they're, um, you know, sometimes there's this, uh, syndrome of, uh, I'm a chameleon. So I change depending on what, who's around me or who I interact with. This sounds like a person that is not very centered. This sounds like a person that in their childhood, again, they were criticized a lot or judged a lot or not accepted. So one of the core emotional needs was not responded there in childhood, which is Mm. acceptance and praise. So in this case, they get this constant uh, concern of how should I be to please others, to be loved, to be seen, to be listened, to be respected. So then they start kind of changing who they are. They're not centered. Their center is outside, is in the feedback that they receive from others. So it's this constant fight of how can Mm -hmm. I be, you know, how can I be loved? How can I be appreciated? How can I be respected? When actually that's not the, you know, the, the process of change here needs to be done in such a way so the person feels centered, feels like this is who I am. And some people will like me, some people will not like me, and it's perfectly okay. But this is who I am, no matter what's coming from the outside. Yeah. Of course, it's a longer process of change. It will not happen overnight, but uh, in general it's because the person was somehow judged, criticized, not accepted in the past. I I wonder if uh, societal and cultural norms come into play here. Do we sometimes hold back from being who we are because, you know, we're afraid we'll be judged by the society or the culture. Sometimes some I would say religion, some cultures have certain characteristics or, you know, behaviors that a person should be like. I don't know. I wonder if if sometimes it could also be that pressure. Of course, that plays a huge role. I mean, the environment and the influence that we receive from our environment, from our culture plays a huge, huge role. And again, we have, mm. you know, you need to imagine that the person is in the middle and then we have uh, circles around yeah, this person or little person, because it starts mm-hmm. from childhood. So you have your family, your mm-hmm. parents are the first circle, but then you have maybe your, you know, um, close people from a family, extended family. Then you have maybe uh, school. Then you have the actual society uh, with all the messages that you receive from your society. Maybe it's uh, one where religion plays a huge role. Maybe it's one where civic rules play a huge role, whatever it is, right? So from yeah. all of these circles, we receive 
uh, a message we receive, uh, you know, they, they all have an impact on who we are. Um, we are being kind of formed and molded by all these influences all together. The closer the circle is to us, the bigger the role, the bigger the impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also yeah. at certain points in life, whatever the specific um, event or specific situation, specific influence can have a bigger weight than what we've received from one from a closer circle. So let's say that my parents did give me a lot of love, acceptance and praise. But then when I went into school, I had extreme, extreme uh, bullying and I was uh, marginalized and I was treated badly. Although that circle, the circle of the school is further from me compared to the one of my parents, but it had the experience mm-hmm. was such a strong one that it, it still had a huge impact on me. Yeah. So of course, yeah. all of these influences, everything that comes towards us will, you know, hit us somehow and will leave a mark. Right. But, um, and, and it's each person has its own combination of influences in life because we are a different world. Each of us, it's a different world, as I always say. And it yeah. needs to kind of be desiccated and see and, and understood where it's coming from and then how we heal that and then how we, you know, move on, how we, we kind of learn a different pattern of behavior. Yeah, where, where it's coming from, um, I think that's very important. And I would also add, I think also being aware of what your true self is. So when when someone says, I'm afraid to be myself, well, what is it? about yourself that you do want people to know or what is your true self that's um that's something i think i always ask myself a lot as well and then starting with maybe small changes to let other people know who the real you is for example if there's something about yourself that you want to share maybe first start sharing with people that you trust and then gradually feeling more comfortable to extend that to other people so We're going to continue with the theme of self-love and self-esteem here. Uh, And the next question is, what are three tips you would say on how one can start loving themselves? Three, huh? I have to give three. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can give maybe one main one that you think, but I think um, the commonality here is just... uh, how can one start loving themselves? Well, I always uh, teach my people how to be their own good, amazing parent. I want, I ask people to really imagine themselves as a child and I ask them to become their own good parent and mm. to start living life from a perspective of a healthy adult and happy in a child, basically, yeah? So what does that mean? It means that you as an adult, you start really, really being able to respond to the physiological and emotional needs of, um, of, uh, of your inner child. Yeah, It's a question of always being attentive, give attention, give support, give encouragement. No matter what happens, no matter what life throws at you, the positive relationship between this healthy adult version of you and the happy inner child should never change. Yeah, Let's say that you did make a mistake. Mm-hmm. What should be coming there is forgiveness. I forgive you. It's okay. We, we move on. Right? So it's all about that. I, I think at the end of the day is self-forgiveness is a big one. One, one of the biggest, uh, I would say. This constant positive relationship with oneself and being able to uh, more and more identify clearly what are the emotional needs that one person has. 
So these are the yeah, I would I would also think that maybe it's also about accepting parts of yourself that you generally don't like because we all have positive and negative traits, right? So and we tend to be a lot of us tend to be self-critical with the traits that we don't love about ourselves and even our physicality that we don't love about ourselves. So it takes a lot of time and practice, but it's just about maybe accepting certain parts of yourself, or if you think they're very disastrous, then trying to to work and, you know, alter them in, in whatever best way that a person can. Acceptance actually is one of the core emotional needs. So if we have to think about, you know, how we need to, to deal with ourselves, you have to, acceptance is a key part of that. Now, acceptance means mm-hmm. what? It doesn't mean well, I will not work on myself, I will not improve myself, I will not grow anymore as a person. No, acceptance means what Mm. I cannot change about myself. I radically and deeply accept it, and I still love and and respect myself despite of the fact that I don't like this. Yeah, because all of us, we will have parts of us, physical, moral, uh, whatever, parts of us that we don't like, and that's perfectly okay. If we cannot change them, we have to accept them, right? So acceptance is one of those core emotional needs um, that we must respond to. Another one is uh, protection from harm. We always have to protect ourselves from harm. Another one is love, nurturing, and attention. You always have to love yourself, give yourself attention, nurture yourself, take care of yourself, right? Another one is um, having uh, some predictability in your life, create that sense of, I have a stable base in my life. Another one is empathy. I always validate and understand my feelings rather than being annoyed of the fact that I have feelings. A lot of people do not accept, do not validate their own feelings. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you see different aspects, but they all go towards the same idea of you need to be very, very soft and good and loving to yourself. Yeah, for sure. The next question is a little bit heavy, I would say, for personally for me. And um, this person asks, how does one deal with grief? And I feel like this is a very, um, this is a big topic. It would probably need a whole episode dedicated for itself, but um, maybe just some information on that. Grief. Um, so grief, it's hard on everybody and Mm. obviously depending on the case it can be harder for some and easier for others but what i find in all the cases where there's grief and especially where we see that there's a blockage with that process of grief we need to number one make sure that there's no somehow in there a feeling of guilt Um, our brain Mm. is so complex that somehow most of the times we figure out the way to place some guilt in there I didn't see much this person. I didn't do much to help them. Yeah. I didn't respond last time. I didn't, uh, you know, save them. I didn't, 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 didn't. Yeah. So even if sometimes you, you know, for sure that you had your best intentions, but in the end, the brain finds a way to kind of place a reason of, of guilt. So that needs to be dealt with. And EMDR does wonders with that, by the way. EMDR, which we've discussed mm-hmm. in previous episodes. And then you have to somehow figure out a way to to be able to um, create kind of... I, I always advise people to create a very personalized uh, ritual between you and the person you lost or 
whatever loved one you lost. So then you feel that actually your you, your own existence still celebrates the the other person or the other creature or whoever you lost. So in the end, you shift from negativity into positivity. Can you give me an example of what you mean by a ritual? Sure. So or... let's say people in general, they will be scared to talk about the person they lost. Let's say, um, yeah. you know, I have these families that they say, I lost my dad. Um, you know, when we sit to have dinner now, there's a chair there and nobody sits on his chair. The chair is still there, but uh, we keep it. We've been keeping it for 10 years, but nobody talks about it. Nobody even mentions him at the table. Yeah. And I tell them, oh why gosh, don't you do the yeah. same? Why don't you do the opposite, actually? Why don't you, instead of, you know, saying, okay, this is that chair, uh, why don't you guys talk about him when you sit at the table? Why don't you bring up the, mm. you know, what he would like to eat or drink? Or why don't you uh, say cheers for his existence? Things like that. Or something something that is very yeah. particular. I don't know. You know, I lost somebody, for example, yeah, just, that uh, used to... Just treasuring the memories. Exactly. And it's an interesting thing that us people in general, <laughs> it's interesting and almost funny, but we tend to celebrate and call anniversary the date of the, the, the date we lost the person, but not the actual birthday of the one that we lost. Um, so we stop celebrating their birthdays, but we celebrate the day of, you know, them going which is very interesting. So basically, are we celebrating the existence of the person or are we actually remembering our pain that day? Mm-hmm. Because it's basically incorrect. We should still celebrate the birthday of the person and say today is dad's birthday and he's not with us, but we are going to make a celebration for his birthday because and because and because we loved him and he was amazing and he used to love this and let's all go to his uh, favorite uh, cafeteria and we all have uh, breakfast there to celebrate his birthday right? This is a healthy ritual of somebody that we lost, not the other way around where we just celebrate the, you know, anniversary of their, uh, them passing away. And we either, we avoid to talk about them or we avoid to celebrate them or we keeps us in negative. um, Basically. I, um, you mentioned something interesting about the, the not talking part of it. Why is that? I feel for people the people that you love who have lost somebody as well, it's very hard to talk about it. It's um, it, it's very hard to, ad- I wouldn't say admit it, but bring bring it up because I think that pain exists for the person grieving, but also the per- people around who, who love that person as well, if that makes sense. If we cannot talk about it in general, it's because there's still too much pain. And we go into what we call emotional avoidance. And that tells us that actually we need mm-hmm. to do a little bit of work there. It's a, it's a process of loss that is not really digested. And, uh, you know, it has a kind of a, an incorrect uh, um, process of healing or it's, it's still not mm-hmm. healed. The wound is still there if we cannot talk about it. Yeah. So that's the first sign yeah. that I'm going through an unprocessed grief or loss. And I should be paying attention to what's going on here. Yeah, that's that's true. I would also um, bring up grief from another perspective of maybe people who have lost something. I mean, grieving maybe their past life or grieving um, someone that they've loved, but they've you know broken up or divorced with. Uh, would you say it's a similar grieving process for someone who 
are is grieving something that they've lost, but it's not it, it's in a different form if, if you understand what I'm what I mean. Well, uh personally, but this is personally, I make this distinction between mm-hmm. loss and grief. So the okay. actual loss can be loss of a job, loss of a relationship, loss of a friend, loss of a uh, right, uh, work, right. Uh, whatever. Um, uh, but uh, hopes, dream, so anything can be a loss, right? Yeah. You're Grief, right, right. it's almost when definitely the wound is bigger. So I've lost. Okay. In general, it is more, more reserved for cases where I lose, you know, a person or a, a, person, a loved yeah. creature, uh, somebody that it's... And, but grief also implies a little bit the fact that I'm in the process of, you know, I'm, I'm allowing myself to grieve for this person or for the mm. lost one. Um, so it's not necessarily, grief doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not in a, in the right, you know, process. It can be grief itself. It's a normal stage of a process of loss. Yeah. I'm feeling sorry, mm-hmm. I'm missing, I am sad. Uh, this is part of grief. And grief can be just a stage of the process. Yeah. But if we see that we cannot move on from that grief or that the grief is keeping me in emotional avoidance or in too much pain still, then it's an unprocessed uh, or an incorrectly processed uh, of loss. Yeah. I hope everyone who is going through grief does have support and and does have someone who who can help them go through it because it's it's very tough and i don't think you realize how tough it is until it happens to someone you know or you love or it happens to you so yeah it's it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to go through that's why support is is highly needed yes and this is another example where we go back to using um, your resources at the maximum so this is one of those Mm. cases where again life throws at you something that is very difficult you need to use what 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 will help you push through is to use uh, to the maximum your resources if you've identified them if not you have to do so and to be still in a positive relationship with yourself. These are the two things that will help you push through. Yeah. But the pain, you are going to feel it on the way there. Through the process, you are going to feel more or less pain depending on each case. Yeah. Absolutely. I I saw a nice post once where it said that, you know, the pain will never go away, but it will just become bearable in a sense. And there was a picture of like... um, a cup and water and the water was like overflowing in the first one. And then in a second one, it says the water, you know, never stops, but like the glass, the cup just gets bigger. So in a sense that because the cup is bigger, the water is less in a way. So it's still there, but somehow you, you manage uh, to deal, to deal with it. Alina, as a final question, uh, as I know we're short on time, we did have a couple more questions, but um, hopefully that could be for Q&A number three. Um, and I really like this question. I find it super interesting, and I thought we'd end it on this one. What are, three, what are the three most important things you've learned as a therapist? This is a very um, 
I yes, love it. This is a very, very deep question. I also love this, uh, this uh, episodes with the questions, really. I think we should do more. Um, they're very natural and they're, very, they're flowing very nicely. Yeah, so what are three important things that I've learned as a therapist? Okay, here I'll open up my heart a little bit, I think. <laughs> I always do, but... Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> this gives me the opportunity to show it more, I guess. Three things, three important things. Number one, my experience as a therapist taught me more than all my studies and all the protocols of interventions that I have in my head. Um, not that I have them, you know, perfectly, but they're there. Um, mm. But the therapy, day-to-day interaction with people that suffer at different levels from different causes, from you know, in different ways, um, taught me that somehow what heals people the most is uh, giving them affection and some kind of support and love and warm mm. uh, feelings and not the actual, you know, protocols of interventions that we we learn. Those are very good as well and they're very helpful. But the healing will never come from there. The healing actually will always come from the the real, real authentic interaction between the therapist and the person. And it's it's wow. so deep and it's so beautiful and it's so um, it has an amazing healing power, unbelievable what it can do, and uh, and this is why a lot of the times people come from one session, from the first session they'll say I somehow felt better. Why? Because absolutely. Of that. Uh, I had that with you, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, I gotta say, my my first session with you, I had that feeling. It's uh, that's very powerful. Made me very emotional. Interesting how how you yes, that. and I strongly I strongly believe I I don't have the time or the talent to write a book, but I would write more on on this because I believe that psychology doesn't yet uh, places the right importance and emphasis on this aspect. Not everybody can be a therapist. There are amazing therapists out there that uh, know by heart all these protocols of interventions and all the medical terms and all the you know uh, <laughs> medical stuff. Yep. But that part. It will help people, definitely will help people, but not heal them. And it's amazing. So building deep connections is is a very vital part of therapy, building a deep connection with your with your therapist. Yes. And um, I don't know, I'll, I'll place here uh, an analogy that maybe some people find it, you know, out of place, but uh, I'm mm. always a trust, a believer in the, in nature and uh, what nature has to teach us. You know, a wounded, a wounded animal, if you take him from the streets, the best thing to do is to, to give them love and affection and care. And it's yeah. incredible how they recover. You know, sometimes you, you take yeah. these poor animals that, I don't know, maybe they were in an accident or they were tortured and you see them, how they change after mm. after some time where, you know, when they've received love and affection and attention. I see the therapy a little bit the same, just that it's only done mm. at the emotional level. And it's unbelievable yeah. how naturally we do have this ability to heal, but we need to be lucky enough to encounter, you know, or to have the experience of a deep, honest, authentic relationship connection yeah that's so because the therapy is a relationship it's a connection it's a professional relationship it's limited within the you know the 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 space of the therapy as such and the boundaries of the therapy but it is a connection if it's not feeling like a connection it will not work very well so that's number one 
Um, second thing I've learned uh, as a therapist that, again, uh, you have to be very natural in what you do and you have to go for what feels natural. So, again, I'm talking more about from my perspective. Every time I've tried to be uh, the therapist that I believe I should be or every time I try to be the therapist that I uh, hear or read that I should be, it just doesn't work. And I always teach people the same. I tell them, be yourself, be natural at whatever you do. You will bring your touch and that's what is going to help others. And that's what's going to, you know, help you progress in your career, in your life, in your, just be natural, be yourself. Um, and I've learned this in my, in my practical years, right? Where I would say, okay, I prepared the session. I will follow the protocol because this is what the books are telling me mm. to do. I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. And those sessions, they were not good sessions. I felt it. And I'm sure my patients and my clients felt it as well as not as good as the ones where I am just myself, because in any case, my brain absorbed a lot of information from my experience, from my learning, from my studies and also all of those. So my brain automatically absorbed whatever information is needed, but then the way I'm delivering that needs to be in a natural, I need to allow myself to be natural. Um, mm. And I think that's very important. Authenticity. Yes. yes. And number three, okay, I, <laughs> I'll have to be careful how I'm saying this. I've learned, mm. my experience as a therapist taught me that we can expect people to understand us if they've been through that experience. So... I guess it goes back to that neuroplasticity and to the neuropaths that we form. Um, so people that will understand pain are people that felt pain. People that will be kind are people that actually suffered from others not being kind to them. And um, not just this, there, there was a point uh, but I've I've got to this conclusion before, but that was kind of the you know the the final conclusion and proof of of this. Um, at one point, I and I think you know actually about this episode in my life, but it was very very eye opening uh, situation where I did a, a charity um, race where I was mm -hmm. uh, anyway cycling and I was doing trying to to gather some money and to give it to a foundation that actually helps children that cannot afford to do, uh, you know, serious operations and probably saves lives. Anyway, in my small ability to kind of use my, you know, hobbies, but in a good cause, uh, of course, I've asked yeah. people to donate, right? And I was so, so surprised to see, and I'm sharing this because I believe that people should know about this because it really shocked me in that moment. And it made me understand also this, what I'm trying to explain here. Although I was in one of the biggest, you know, hospitals, although I was surrounded by colleagues of mine and friends of mine that are, I know they have a very uh, quite comfortable economical position and they even have a career that should support right the goodness and the help of medical research and medical you know surgeries Absolutely. surprisingly enough nobody from my doctor colleagues donated for me except one of them because she's my actual friend as well and so she's part of my personal life but surprisingly mm -hmm. enough all my patients at that point donated so I was yeah, so wow. surprised by this. And I said, it's incredible. The people that are kind are the people that suffered. Why? Because they already have those neuropaths in their brain. They have the experience of what it is to, to be in pain, what it is to be in need, 
what it is to you know to need support mm, and help it's very interesting um, and but the ones that you know they haven't been maybe through those experiences we cannot judge them right because they don't feel it they don't they don't really think about it i was so surprised um i mean i was surprised and not surprised because again as i'm saying the neuro mm. the neurology kind of explains it all but it's interesting so i guess that's what i've learned as a therapist that also we can somehow only expect the empathy and people to really know what we go through if somehow they've been through that experience as well. Wow, Alina, you, you've made a very interesting research question out there. Does, um, does the way that our neuropaths have been built imply how, you know, how we are? It's, I'm just really thinking about what was the reason? Is it like, it's absolutely possible, but do you think these doctors of yours have never suffered that they yeah it's just like that distinction is wow well i don't have another a different explanation and there you go you have a topic of research you're the the, the person <laughs> that loves research um i'm sure is explained uh, somehow uh you know within these lines of you know the the more you've suffered the more you'll you'll because i see it i see that the kindest people yeah. that i have uh, met in my life are actually the people that suffered the most in their life the yeah. the people that i that got to my consultation with their biggest traumas those are the kindest people i've met in this life mm. so how come what explains this when a person that yeah. actually you know is okay but should rationally have all the reasons to you know support um, exactly. such a charity like mine right because the doctor should have been what I expected was the whole hospital to jump Absolutely. and say right we support you because this is for the medical research and this is for you know children that cannot afford these surgeries that we do right but uh, no matter how much noise I would make there nothing would happen absolutely nothing zero but uh, nevertheless I I only had to mention it to my patients and they've all in the you know in the limits of their possibilities but they've all donated yeah. and for me I was wow this is I think the world should know about this and I bet that there are other studies done out there I'm sure I'm sure yeah so I don't yeah. know if I've that's that that's why um that's why the rich get richer right <laughs> I guess so greediness it's uh it's very interesting and you you've given us a lot to think about uh on a final note alina yeah and maybe i've i've shared it sounded too much as uh, my personal experience but i think it links nicely and you know again um it is what i've learned from my experience as a therapist right it's one of these conclusions alina this has been really great as always thank you so much for joining us again on this episode it's always so fun to have you here Thank you so much. Always a great, great pleasure. And uh, I can't wait for us to receive more questions and we will be here to answer them as much as we can and with what we know. And I think sharing is, it is caring and sharing, it's, uh, it's a beautiful Absolutely. gesture. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening as always.